Lauren. Mike. Lauren, you've played a video game in AR, but have you ever listened to a podcast in AR? Hmm. What is what is that? Is that spatial audio? Maybe? I'm not sure. Well, we'll have to fix that. Put on your headset now, please. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by Wired's digital director, Brian Barrett. Hello, Brian. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are talking about AR, also known as augmented reality. This week, Microsoft showed off a new augmented reality platform called Microsoft Mesh. It's designed to let people in different locations meet with each other in a space that blends a real environment with virtual avatars. Microsoft isn't the only company thinking that AR is going to play a big role in the future. A few other big name companies are working on AR glasses too. And sooner or later, you might use one of these headsets to attend a virtual birthday party while you do the dishes or sit through a PowerPoint presentation while you stroll around your neighborhood. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> You've really sold us on those use cases. <laughs> Well, we're not quite there yet. The technology has a ways to go, and what's available now is a little janky. So later in the show, we're going to talk about AR more broadly. But first, let's step into the hollow zone. Lauren, you met with Microsoft this week to talk about its big news, and you had some firsthand experience with the new HoloLens software in the process. How did that go? Right. So this new software is called Microsoft Mesh. And I think the important thing to note is that HoloLens has been around now for, you know, several years, and it's in its second iteration. That's the hardware. But Microsoft already had a mixed reality platform that would run on both the HoloLens and in VR headsets. And it connected to Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud service that it talks about a lot. So that was just called Microsoft Mixed Reality. And this new thing called Microsoft Mesh feels like the next step in this software. So I've had a few AR and VR demos in recent months with other companies that are doing this kind of thing too. Um, I've written about a company called Spatial. I've written about a new company called Arthur. And then some of you might be familiar with Facebook Spaces where you wear an Oculus headset and you're sort of interacting with other people. And that's the whole idea, right? You're interacting with other people in VR in real time. And in some cases, you might also be able to do that on an AR headset. But what's interesting about Microsoft Mesh, I mean, in my opinion, is that it kind of points to this future of AR glasses. Because right now we're mostly talking about these big bulky headsets that no one is going to want to wear as they're walking down the street or doing the dishes or attending virtual birthday parties. But a lot of people are talking about glasses, more lightweight glasses, like the Google Glass kind, but more advanced as the kind of future of this. And I think what Microsoft was trying to show off was software that will get us there. Um, I should also probably note that my experience trying both a HoloLens 2 headset and an HP, what is it called? Like re HP, sorry, Reverb G2 VR, I think. <laughs> Did I get that right? Okay. Rolls off I the had, tongue. <laughs> I had those both sent to me uh, by Microsoft to try this new software. And, and my experience was, um, shall we say, mixed. Um, but that is the gist. How, well, what kind of problems did you have? So setting up the HoloLens 2 actually wasn't too problematic. I mean, the thing with wearing a headset is that whenever you set 
a new one up, you're sort of losing the agency that you're used to when you set up new products or applications on a laptop or a mobile phone, right? You have to like enter in your email and, and enter a password and just authenticate and then start downloading things. And the way that these headsets work is that you're using your hands kind of either floating in the air or you have hand controllers and then you're like painstakingly punching in key by key on a virtual keyboard. So just that to get started is like, it's just typically a pain in the ass. But um, in this case, the HoloLens 2 worked pretty well. I was meeting with Alex Kipman from Microsoft in an app called Phoenix that pretty much went off without a hitch. It was once I got into the VR headset, the HP, whatever it's called, headset, um, that it just required a lot of updates. And that, of course, has to be plugged into a laptop. The laptop has to have the right kind of processing power in order to support these virtual experiences. And we had to go into like a zip drive and extract new bits and install them. And, you know, these things you have to charge. And then, you have, of course, you have to fit them to your face and make sure that you're not uh, creating an experience for yourself where you feel nauseous in the headset. And like, I couldn't find the volume control. And when I tried to launch a, an application for volume control, it crashed. It was just like, I ended up spending about a total of four hours um, in headsets or setting up headsets, trying to understand what this new Microsoft mesh experience would be like. And it just, it really was not a great experience. I guess, Lauren, what I wonder too, is even after all that, which, which sounds terrible, <laughs> but, but, you know, assuming like, assuming people go through that and they get it done, did you find the experience of actually meeting with someone in AR or VR to be a better experience or or did you have that nagging sense at the back of your head well this could have been a phone call right to talk to, to talk about the vr because i wonder about mm -hmm. that like this this push towards let's meet in these virtual realities i'm i'm already so tired of zoom i can't imagine you know having to worry about my avatar or you know, like uh, that the sort of like uh presenting myself in in a, in a in a virtual manner um and having that yeah. sort of weird aquarium background or whatever that i don't know like it, it feels <laughs> that's just, in my head all vr backgrounds are like weird aquarium backgrounds i don't know why but you know what i mean like like was there any benefit to it or, or was it just like well we're doing this for its own sake and and you know we'll see what happens next you know that's an excellent question because we as journalists, when we take phone calls, we are often really concerned with taking notes. And it sounds like a really simple thing, but a lot of people who are sitting in meetings are in fact taking notes so that you can record the information that's being exchanged and then maybe do something actionable with it. And it's really hard to take notes when you're in VR or AR. I mean, AR is a little bit of a different experience because you do still have awareness of the real world surroundings around you. Like I could look through HoloLens and I could still see like my computer screen on my desk and like, you know, theoretically like a notepad I could have been jotting down. But VR, you're just, your face is completely immersed and you like sort of don't know where to stand and what to do with your hands. And it's really, it can be really disconcerting. So in not just the Microsoft demos I did last week, but in prior demos with VR companies, I, the, one of the first things I ask is, how are we going to record this call? How am I going to get access to my notes? And then they say, oh, don't worry, we'll record it and send you the notes. But like, even that is not great because then they send these files afterwards and they're different file types. And I still have to go through the process of transcribing them. And I would really rather just take my own notes during a meeting. So that seems like a really simple thing that somebody needs to solve. Um, but then in terms of like, did it capture my attention? Uh, 
I mean, maybe I was a little bit more present with Alex Kipman standing as, um, you know, an anime avatar in my living room, <laughs> um, you know, than I would have been if I was just looking at him through Zoom or pardon me, Microsoft Teams in their case. <laughs> but it was still a cartoon. And, and, you know, at some point he said, like, he said his own team is collaborating on the next version of HoloLens while wearing HoloLens. And he kind of said, you know, never mind that they may be cartoon avatars. The point is that they're collaborating. And so he, he sort of wanted me not to pay too much attention to the fact that we were both cartoon characters. He wanted me just to, to sort of be aware of the fact that, like, he was doing what, you know, he referred to as holoportation. So I guess, like, I did feel like I had to be a little bit more present because this person or caricature of a person was standing there in my living room but I didn't feel like I grasped the information that was being shared maybe in the way that Microsoft had hoped you know I think the uh, the cartoon avatar is, thing is a problem because it sort of sends a mixed message like you know we all know that VR and AR in particular have been widely adopted by the gaming community, right? So everything that all the news that you see about VR and AR, most of it anyway, is about games. And in order to make it work in a business setting where people are supposed to be meeting and collaborating, the easiest thing to do is just sort of translate that and give somebody sort of like a video game style, you know, simulacrum of a, of a room and of the other people in the room. Um, but it's like HoloLens in particular and Mesh is these are not products made for gaming they're not made for consumers they're made for like collaboration at businesses right right it's kind of like having a serious conversation with someone when they're presenting themselves as a memoji like we do on iphone or something so one thing i wanted to ask brian is that niantic which makes pokemon go was a part of this week's ar news from microsoft they brought niantic ceo john hankey on stage to demonstrate how Pokemon Go could be used in Microsoft Mesh. And Brian, you, you've you talked to John Hankey recently. I did as well, but um, I think you had a pretty interesting conversation with him about the future of AR glasses. What can you share about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You would see how Niantic would be really excited about AR glasses because it gets people off their phones necessarily. It makes it more immersive. Like instead of having to see a Pokemon through holding up your phone, you can just see it by looking straight forward. But he was saying, you know, at, at earliest, they're expecting AR glasses to be workable and feasible in three years max, probably more like four and probably longer. So it's just a pretty long timeline, given how important that's going to be um, to his company, to AR generally, which is why I sort of believe it, you know, like I, I, um, I feel like it would be at least that long. Interesting, especially when, with reports of, you know, maybe Apple coming along soon and, and people assume that'll sort of speed things up a little bit. But you know, so if we're looking at a timeline where we have AR glasses that work the way they kind of do in sci-fi or the way that we all sort of imagine that they might in their heads where it's seamless and it's on board and you sort of um, integrate it, I guess I still wonder even then, and let's say assume like they move past the avatar problem because Microsoft does want to have, they want to be able to show an actual representation of you, I think at some point, right? They want more of, mm -hmm. a, of a Princess Leia um, coming out of R2-D2 situation than, although I will say as a tangent, if in Star Wars they had chosen to make the Princess Leia hologram message more of like a goofy anime avatar, I think that would have been hilarious and wonderful. <laughs> but but be that as it may, I'm just saying, just think about that. Okay, so <laughs> that being said, even then, is that something like, does that make it almost weirder to have, especially if it's somebody you don't know that well, 
like a Microsoft executive showing up in your living room talking to you about um, uh, about his latest product. I don't know. And I, I feel like I'm being too um, too much of a Luddite about this. But for some reason, I feel like the space that we have between each other in in meetings that are on video or on the phone is healthy and, and good and lets people sort of uh, not have to be totally zoned in all the time, which is, even when you have glasses and even when you have real representation of people, all that does is sort of like force your attention even more on, on that that one thing uh, instead of leaving you open to let your mind think about other things. I don't know. Um, so, so I, it's, it's going to be an interesting sell. Um, I'm sure it'll be great for productivity uh, <laughs> if and when it ever comes to fruition. <laughs> but is that the best thing? All right. We're going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of consumer AR. Welcome back. If augmented or mixed reality headsets are ever going to take off, they're going to need to take some big leaps in usability, in comfort, and above all, in utility. It's not enough to just put out a cool headset. You also have to give people something compelling to do with it. Brian, please tell us, why don't we live in the mirror world yet? Ah, so many reasons. Um, you know, I think let's let's assume the technological reasons... Like, you know, you have to fit a battery in there, you have to fit a small enough display in there. There's there's a lot of sort of core tech reasons that we're not there yet, right? But even assuming, even if you solved all those tomorrow, which you can't, um, I think the bigger problem is we still don't have uh, a sort of, it's, it's and again, going back to Niantic, uh, an, an operating system for it. What's the, what's the Android of AR, which is... A, Google would say, well, Android is, but uh, <laughs> there, there's there's this effort that Niantic and Facebook and others are undergoing and Google uh, to map this virtual version of the world um, so that anywhere you use your AR glasses or your AR device, um, you have that reference and you can sort of easily incorporate any of the augmented elements into it. Um, I think that's a really interesting space. It's something that is still developing. And I think until you have that baseline, um, it's going to be hard to have these sort of like universally um, usable applications. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to watch. I think Niantic has a really interesting advantage there because basically if you play Pokemon Go, you're doing it for them. So, uh, so they, sorry, what you're yeah. talking about is a uh, like a, a location marking system that is allows all of the different AR platforms to be interoperable. No, well, I think that would I think that would be the idea, but I think right now they're all competing. So, like for if you're Niantic, for example, they want to get like a 3D map of every as of much of the geographical regions that people inhabit as possible. So not just where things are, but what they look like, what's their depth. Um, in the same way that Street View sort of tracks every road, um, a map of the AR world of the of the mirror world would sort of show you. Um, how big are the rocks and the trees and just sort of like you create this sort of digital version of the world that you can lay anything on top of. So when you when you add an AR element to a space, it, it can interact with those things because it knows where it is and it knows what size they are. Whereas if you just pick up your phone in Pokemon Go right now, it's just the Pokemon appears without really caring whether it's on a lamppost or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, which again, would be a cool place for a Pokemon to be. I'm not, I wouldn't be, you know, like swinging from a lamppost, that would be great. <laughs> I think Brian's point is a really important one because it's essentially what is the killer app, right? And what we see happen with any kinds of new computing platforms or paradigms is that 
you could nail the hardware, but you have to have an application or some kind of experience that really draws people in. And like, this is not quite the same thing, but look at something like wearables or folding phones, right? We, we now like pretty much have embraced, um, and by wearables, I mean wrist wearables, like we've embraced smartwatches, right? But they haven't really quite panned out to be the third party app platform that we thought maybe they would be five to seven years ago. It's pretty much the native experience that you have on that device is the one you're going to use. And then folding phones, like sure, there've been some fits and starts and some hardware problems, but ultimately it's like, are there apps that sort of make sense? Like, do you want to run three apps side by side on a mobile device? Or does it make sense to like open one app and then sort of swipe it to like, or unfurl it into a larger screen? Um, and so what I think we're gonna experience with with smart glasses is that like, sure, at some point people are going to figure out that you just, you're gonna, you're, they're gonna figure out the waveguides or whatever technology they're using, projection technology they're using to actually get the image in front of your eyes. But what is the thing that's going to be in front of your eyes that's interesting? Mm -hmm. And and like, what's unique about this too is that like, this is on your face. Uh, the face or the head is one of the most personal areas of the body. And not only that, but it's our center for sensing things around us. So asking people to wear something on their face and also to sacrifice potentially some other kind of spatial awareness so you can see some AR cartoons at this point is still asking a lot. Yeah, you know, in, in order to get that spatial awareness, you need to have cameras on these things. And I think that's been uh, that's been a very big issue with any sort of face-worn wearable in the past, like with Google Glass and the things that have come out recently, like Snapchat spectacles, Snap spectacles. Um, you know, regardless of the fact that everybody's walking around pointing their phone camera at everything around them and taking pictures of strangers all day long, the fact that you're putting <laughs> it on your face and you have cameras pointing out at the person that you're looking at is much more invasive to people. And I think that's like a, a, a sort of a psychological hurdle that um, we are probably not going to be able to clear as a society until there's a lot more happens. I think, unfortunately, some tech companies have already cleared that hurdle without really checking with anyone else. Um, uh, BuzzFeed reported uh, the other week that uh, Facebook executive Andrew Bosworth um, was planning to suggest that you could put facial recognition, build those into your AR uh, glasses um, without maybe thinking through the repercussions uh, for people who don't want to be able to be identified by strangers on the street or worse than strangers, people that they uh, have a bad relationship with or have reason to fear. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of ethical and practical thinking through of these products that there's not really an indication so far that the companies at the center of them have given full weight, uh, which is another sort of uh, yikes moment. What would both of you say has been the most compelling AR experience you've had so far? Because over the years, I've gotten a lot of furniture demos, you know, to which I usually say like, my dude, how often do you think I buy sofas? Because I think I've maybe had two sofas in the past 10 years. And then maybe a little bit more recently, the demos I've received have been a about, you know, collabor workplace collaboration and that sort of thing. But then we've already kind of illustrated what some of the drawbacks are of that. So when you guys think about like that AR app that you've had a really cool experience with, what is it? Um, for me, uh, it is the measurement app where you can point your camera at uh, an object and see how deep and wide and tall it is. I'd say that's probably the the single practical use of augmented reality. Sounds pretty straightforward. This is telling because that is also my favorite use of augmented <laughs> reality. And darn you, Mike, for going first. But it is, what, have it's you, the, what have you actually used it for? Like, what have you measured? If I, I honestly, you know what I do when I get out a cake pan and I'm not sure if it's eight inches or nine inches, <laughs> I grab my phone. 
<laughs> and I check it and I'm good to go. Yeah. I bought some And that frames. is that is what AR has done for me personally. That it is it has it has saved me five minutes of cooking time. I think we're really losing our street cred as wired writers right now. Like our audience is probably like, you guys are supposed to be on the cutting edge. Lauren, Lauren, are we yeah. losing our street cred or is AR losing its street cred? <laughs> yeah. And besides Maybe. all those non-technology journalists are just using tape measures and that's, that's the past. We're living in the future. Right. So then the obvious follow-up question is, do you need a $2,000 or $3,000 pair of glasses to have that experience? Or can you just continue using these um, these really boring bricks we hold in our hands, you know, 20 hours a day now? So I think I think you mentioned the Apple Watch earlier, and I, I, I could see a scenario where AR does some of what people wanted the Apple Watch to, to do, and, and that it does to a certain extent. It saves you from having to look at your phone. Like my ambitions mm-hmm. for AR are not super world-changing. They're maybe like getting a text message and not having to pull out my phone or looking at a building and maybe there's some historical significance that it can show me and I don't have to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something that saves me from having to, re- from not having to, saves me from reaching into my pocket every 30 seconds just compulsively um, seems like a good use case. On the other hand, do I want my eyeballs constantly assaulted by those things? I don't know. I don't think so, probably. Uh, but it's maybe that's that's where I see the most likely, especially near term, especially if Apple does introduce a, a, a set in the near term or like in the next year or two. Um, you could see that. And then gaming would be the other use case, which we obviously see with Pokemon Go, too, and um, some other things. But um, yeah, I don't I, I, I again, it's a, maybe a failure of my own imagination, but it seems those iterative um things and those sort of time-saving, phone-saving things are are going to be the things that people actually use the most. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of people are are really speculating about um, Apple's uh, long-rumored move into AR glasses, and I am very much looking forward to seeing what that company does with it. Like, Lauren, you were saying earlier you had this terrible uh, experience trying to get onto the device and authenticate. You know, if you think about the way that the Apple Watch authenticates, right, you just, you know, you very easily pair it with your phone or like AirPods pair with your phone. I can see uh, an Apple headset pairing with the rest of the Apple ecosystem very seamlessly. And to me, that's exciting because, you know, that's the way that company thinks about technology. And that's the sort of experience that they're very good at designing. They're designing it to disappear. You know what I mean? Right. People talk about Apple owning the full stack, which means they have ultimate control over hardware and software. And also they're increasingly making their own chips, right, or designing their own chips. And so that could be a big differentiator here, too. I think Apple does have a very good chance, um, based on all of that, of putting out something, if they do put out AR glasses, that offer a more consumer-friendly experience. There has been a report from Bloomberg that suggests that Apple may also start sort of at the high end of the market, you know, a $3,000 headset that's that's focused more on um, developers to start. So maybe it won't come immediately to consumers, but because of that full stack ownership, you could see it working a little bit more seamlessly than some of these other kludgy experiences. I also want to point out that about a half hour before we started taping today, we're taping this on Thursday. By the time you hear this, it will be Friday or later. So you should check back to my Twitter feed, I guess, if you want an update. But I did tweet we're talking about mixed reality and a future filled with AR glasses on the Gadget Lab this week. What are your thoughts on AR glasses? And then I ran a Twitter poll, and so far there are just under 100 votes, but um, 
51% of people said they are cautiously optimistic. 34% of people said, no, get away from my face. And 14% of people said, we live in the future. So um, now, granted, uh, my uh, Twitter audience might be a little bit skewed towards people who are generally into technology, but it seems like the majority of respondents so far are cautiously optimistic about AR glasses. I remember covering the launch of Google Glass at Google I.O. It feels like maybe 10 years ago at this point. But, um, you know, they showed it off and they said, here is a device that we're working on. This is what we're thinking is going to be the next great interface. And they showed Google Glass and they explained that this is not the final thing. This is just an idea of where we're headed. And when it finally arrives, it's going to be indistinguishable from a regular pair of eyeglasses. Of course, what happened was everybody just saw the thing and said, that is ugly. That's terrible. I would never wear that. So, you know, the device that they showed was not the finished idea of the device. It was just sort of like a bridge to get you to the finished idea of the device. I firmly believe that the things that we're seeing now, things like HoloLens, are the things that are just the bridge that are going to get us to the eventual device. And that when we do have AR glasses, they're just going to be glasses. They're not going to be, you know, big bulky things with like blinking lights and cameras that you can see. They're just going to be, you know, maybe a little bit bulkier than a regular pair of sunglasses, but they're going to look like you're wearing sunglasses. I, I really think that's where we're going. Brian, did you ever try Google Glass? Uh, no, I I, I actually didn't. Um, weirdly enough, I do want to say as although while Mike is noting that correctly that they kind of downplayed it, they also announced it by jumping out of an airplane. So they did hype it up a bit. Like I don't want I don't want it to sound like they were just like gaze upon our humble project. We're not we're not sure what it is, but no, they 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 jumped out of an airplane. Of course. So they they had some marketing about it. No, I never used Google Glass. I have used I, I um I have worn a pair of functional AR glasses that were being demoed at CES a few years ago from not one of the major companies. And it, it was really good. It was neat. I, it was a, a Google Maps application that was built directly into the lens. Um, so, so it was actually, it was that experience of like, um, you know, no external hardware, just like you were just wearing a regular pair of glasses. Um, and, and it, it was cool. It was, it was very early days and it was grainy and it, you had to look in the exact right spot, but it did show sort of the, the potential of, okay, if I can pull up Google Maps and then I'll just sort of be able to see where I am in my eyeball, um, hopefully not while I'm driving because then I'll also get into an accident on the way to wherever the Google Maps take me. I don't know. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic as long as there are people are responsible about how they use them and as long as we figure out how to not find ourselves all living in different AR worlds. Like, uh, you know, there's a, the gap between iOS and Android is big enough already if it also affects like what you see when you look around outside your window, um, that's going to be a strange place to live. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to wear focals for an entire CES a couple of years ago. Do you remember this, Mike? Yes, I do. Brian, you were there too. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I think I wore them for about three or four days. I don't remember. I did write a review of them, but 2019 feels like 17 years ago. And um, they were very, they were heavy. They were heavy on my face. Like they didn't seem that way right away because I think the company did a relatively good job of designing them to look like regular spectacles. 
But after a while, I was like, I'm very tired of these and the benefit I'm getting from them is minimal. Occasionally, I'm seeing a text message come through. I also see the time of day. And then I had this experience that people have in Vegas without wearing smart glasses, which is you've been in a casino for many, many hours and then you you step out to the street, the real world, and you're like, ah, blinding light. <laughs> you know? And uh, and I, I just couldn't see the display as well once I was outside. So the times that I had to walk from casino to casino outdoors, I actually didn't find the turn by turn directions to be at all helpful because I could barely see them. But anyway, they I think they did a good job, you know, considering they were a startup, scrappy startup out of Canada. And then they ended up getting bought by Google. So maybe at some point we'll see Focals reemerge as a new kind of Google Glass. Great. And then we can all use it to measure our cake pans. <laughs> That's right. I also I think I do remember sharing a cab with Lauren at CES that year and having her suddenly <laughs> go what? and stare off into the distance for a minute as she got an incoming text. That's right. There was something going on with like, you were telling me something and I was like, oh, this thing is happening at the Golden Globes or something like that. Like it was like ridiculous. I, and you yeah. were like, what? Although I, I did mean, appreciate the update. I am a big Golden Globes fan. <laughs> I think it was the Golden Globes or something like that. I can't wait uh, for our technology to make us even more distracted than we already are. Right. Right. I think I think Brian was probably telling me some like really cute story about his family, you know, and his wife and kids. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Ooh, news alert on my face. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a break. And then when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. All right. Welcome back, Brian. You are our guest. What is your recommendation? I am going to recommend a book again. I like to recommend books. Uh, it's called A Children's Bible uh, by Lydia Millet or Millet. I am sorry that I don't know if that has a French pronunciation or not. Uh, it is terrific. It is a real gut punch. It is a climate change parable um, for the modern age. Everyone should read it. Um, and it, it, it really sticks with you. How, how long is it? It's not that long. It's a quick read. I read it in a day and, and I am not the fastest reader. So nice. Is it a new book? It came out last year. Um, so new ish, but not hot off the presses. Um, but it, 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 it takes place in, in modern times. It's, uh, it's very allegorical in spots, but not in a way that makes you feel like you're in AP English. <laughs> <laughs> a children's Bible by Lydia <laughs> Millet. Millet. Thank you, Brian. Lauren, what is your recommendation? Uh, you know, Brian is a wonderful guest, but I, I am missing Galad a little bit this week. Galad was on our show last week and he joined us just for the recommendations portion of the show and things got really out of hand. So in honor of Galad not being on the show this week, I'm going to make a Galad-like recommendation, which is take a bath. I really like baths. <laughs> <laughs> You should talk to fellow Wired uh, senior writer Lily Newman, who wrote maybe the definitive baths are better than showers piece on the internet uh, when she was at Slate. Really? Yeah, she is the, she is, uh, for better or worse, she is the uh, online presence for the baths are better than showers movement. Let's include that in the show notes. Because that sounds like a fantastic piece. And I haven't even read it yet. And I can say it's one I probably support. <laughs> because I've always been a bath fan. But particularly in the time of the pandemic, I really enjoy a nightly bath. Um, I put things in the bath. 
you know, things such as arnica, which is good for sore muscles, or um, Epsom salt, or bubble bath. And the thing that I've learned is that showers are too much work. <laughs> you have to stand up in a shower, and you have to move around to clean oneself. And um, if you have long hair, it often gets wet in the shower, unless you go through the work of putting on a shower cap, which again is more work. Whereas in a bath, you can just put it up in a bun and it will not get wet. So I, um, I just have to say also, you can still um, respond to text messages in the bath. You can read a book in the bath. You can do so much in a bath that you cannot do if you are inclined. You could even bring alcohol into the bath. Um, I have friends well, that okay. have like you, one of those. You can bring alcohol into a shower. Let's be clear. You could. That's true. That's true. The shower yeah, beer I, is, is very important. But I do I do really recommend take. I just take, recommend taking a bath. That's it. If you have access to a bathtub. I mean, it's a criteria for me. Like, whenever I've looked at apartments, I've been like, does it have? Nope. Stand-up shower only? Nope. I'm out of here. So that's my recommendation. Are you excited for the smart bath? No. No? No. They can, you can keep your smart bath. You can, I'll tell you what to do with your smart bath. <laughs> wow. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is a game. It is available for iOS and it is available for Android and it's called Really Bad Chess. Uh, it's not a new game, but it's new to me and I love it. So it's a chess game. All the rules of chess apply, as you would expect. Uh, the, the, the twist is that when you start the game you have a very different board layout than you would normally see. So instead of, you know, the row of pawns and then, uh, you know, two of each piece along the back row, you'll have like four queens, a couple of rooks, and the rest are all knights, you know, or like all bishops. And so you, the pieces can actually only move the way that the pieces are legally allowed to move, but you just have a very odd number of pieces. So your strategy completely changes, and it really forces you to think about chess in a different way. So I like this game because I have never really gotten into chess apps. I never really got into computer chess, at least as an adult. I played a lot as a kid. But it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of samesies all the time. It's like you get a little bored. You're playing against a computer, and it's always beating you. And you play against humans, and you feel mismatched. So this game really just gives you a way to break out of that stagnation of being stuck with boring old chess and you can get exciting new chess. Uh, it's also just like wacky, you know, like if you've ever played with like, you know, eight knights and four rooks, it's a totally different way of approaching the game. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's sort of like a brain teaser. Do you have to know how to play chess already to start playing this game? Yeah, because, you know, you're, you, the, you have to know how the pieces move and you have to know, mm -hmm. you know, that the object of the game is to put the king in, in check uh, and that some pieces are more valuable than others because of the way that they're allowed to move around the board. So you do have to have some of that knowledge. But uh, once you get beyond the basics, uh, it's accessible to just about anybody imagine when you can play it in ar <laughs> i can't wait i can't wait and they could all be little like pokemon characters all right well that is our show thank you again brian barrett for joining us thank you for having me i'm also uh, amazed that you were able to make it through the whole show while wearing your hololens <laughs> i really felt like i was there with you guys <laughs> Watch out for the giant sharks overhead. And thank you all for listening. <laughs> if you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.
Hi everyone, Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.